Well, I wonder if you uh, guys have ever had an opportunity to witness to someone, share the gospel with someone that you didn't know. Have any of you done that? When I was a kid, uh, when I was a teenager uh, in middle school, we had this Sunday night program called uh, 119. It was after Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is all about uh, David's love and passion for the word of God, the statutes of God, the commands of God, the, you know, the, all the things that God has shared in, in his word. And uh, so it was kind of like a night for Bible study. But I did not like going to 119 when I was young because I didn't, I didn't want to go to church again on a Sunday. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I went to church that morning, right? Why would I want to go back? on Sunday night to church again. Uh, I just had no interest. And then this little moment in my life came where all of a sudden, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality of his forgiveness, his grace, his goodness in our lives, uh, all of a sudden at age 13, it became very real to me. And that was over the summer. And so when fall came and they started 119 again, I was like, I'm going to 119. I'm going to 119, guys. This is crazy. Uh, and, and so I started going, and they decided that semester what they were going to do is they were going to teach us how to share our testimonies and how to share the gospel. And then we were going to take a field trip to the mall and tell random strangers about Jesus. I dug it. I thought, this is so cool. And I went to the mall and I shared Jesus with random strangers. And honestly, I don't know if anyone, you know, made a commitment to Christ or anything like that. But it was a, it was a powerful experience. So then in ninth grade, I joined this thing called Evangelism Explosion. Does anyone remember Evangelism Explosion? E.E. And I memorized these Bible verses and I memorized this, like, outline for how to share the gospel with someone. So what did we do? Well, whenever a new family came to our church that had teenagers in the family, we would show up at their house on a weeknight, ask ourselves in, and share the gospel with that teenager. Crazy stuff, right? Uh, By the way, I met my best friend in high school by doing that. I showed up at his house, shared the gospel with him. He was already a believer. We ended up becoming best friends. And then, the next year, I went to this... uh, uh, event in Chicago where, where I uh, slept at Moody Bible Institute, but during the mornings we got all these lectures and trainings on sharing the gospel, and we went out to the streets of Chicago, and we shared the gospel with people. Now, I also wonder if any of you have shared the gospel with someone that you do know. It's a very different experience, and I hope that you have taken the opportunity to do that. It's a very different experience than sharing it with someone you don't know. Because they know who you are, you have some some standing with them, right? They, they, uh, hopefully it's not someone who dislikes you very much, right? It could be. But hopefully they, they actually like you, they're actually willing to hear something you have to say, they have some respect for you. Well, in the book of Romans, Paul is writing to this church that he's never been to. And He's writing to these people that he has no connection with directly. And he wants to talk to them about the gospel. Now, of course, this is an established church. So he's not writing to unbelievers, but he's writing to believers. But imagine, imagine if someone wrote a letter to our church 
telling us how we had the gospel wrong and we needed to get it right. How would you feel about that? It'd be a little different than if one of us stood up and said, hey, I think we're getting this wrong and we need to get it right. What if just some guy who lives in Milwaukee wrote us a letter? I've heard about you. And by the way, you're getting it wrong. I've heard about you, and I'm excited about the fact that you're a community of faith, but there's things about the gospel that you not only don't understand, but from that lack of understanding, you're living the wrong way. Paul is trying to write that kind of letter to a church that he's never been to, to a church that um, he had no hand, that he not even indirectly in founding. And not only that, it was a church that, even though at this point in time it wasn't the most powerful center of Christianity in the world, it was certainly the most powerful city in the world. And so you might imagine that they might think, well, who's this guy to tell us, right? And so as we jump into this little letter to the Romans, uh, we're going to see right away how Paul deals with this kind of reality, how Paul deals with the attempt to correct someone he's never met in the gospel. Now, before I look at that, and before we get into that, I just want to remind you what it is that the, the letter to the Romans is all about. Uh, the letter to the Romans is Paul's attempt to address... Sorry, can we get that next slide, Asher? Paul's attempt to address the conflict that there is in Rome. And we talked a little bit about it last week, but I didn't go into detail. But in Rome, in the Roman church, it's, it's a church that probably started as primarily Jewish, but this is taking place after many of the Jews have been kicked out of Rome, of all types. And so what's left seems to be a predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish congregation. But there's still some Jews there, and there's Gentiles there, and they're having this conflict. And really, what it seems to boil down to from the letter is that the Jewish Christians were looking down on the non-Jewish Christians because they didn't follow or have the law. And the non-Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, were looking down on the Jewish Christians because they were bound by the law. They had different understandings of what it meant to be faithful to Jesus Christ, what it meant to be righteous, what it meant uh, to be complete in the Lord. And Paul wants to say to them, you're both getting it wrong. You're both wrong. And so he spends the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans showing how Christ, through his self-sacrifice, received both Jews and Gentiles by grace. And then he spends the second part of the letter, Romans 12 to 15, saying, if Jesus sacrificed himself to receive you by grace, then you, through self-sacrifice, must receive each other by grace. This uh, accusation, condemnation, uh, this idea of one being better than the other is antithetical to the gospel. And as you can imagine, the circumstances in the church today are different, but I think you can see the relevance to what's going on today. What's going on in the body of Christ, where people have different opinions about politics, about health care, about 
you know, what responses there should be about uh, racial injustice, about all sorts of issues. And often we see both sides, there's probably more than two sides, but multiple sides assuming the other is wrong and not just wrong, but then judging them as a result. And Paul wants to say this is antithetical to the gospel. And so as we jump into this passage, uh, we're going to look just at the first 17 verses of Romans. I want you to see how Paul, from the very beginning, is going to model for us, and for the Romans primarily, but also for us, what it means to live like this. So if you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 1, we're going to jump right in. Um, what my, I thought here is I'm going to give a few notes as we go along the way, just so we understand what's being said, and then talk about the big picture items, all right? So Paul says this. Uh, he, he starts his letter just like so many ancient people started the letter. He identifies himself. We write our name at the end. They wrote their name at the beginning. So Paul says this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So that's, him, that's his opening of who he is. And now he's going to say who the letter's for. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul opens this up, the first thing that he does here is, again, these are people who he doesn't know. They've probably heard of him, but they've never met him. And what he's trying to say right off the bat is, in a sense, why should you listen to me? Right? Why should you care about anything I say? Am I just some random guy from Milwaukee? Or do I actually have some, maybe, potentially some authority and some right to talk to you about the gospel? Well, he says uh, right off the bat, I'm not coming in my own authority. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. The, the word translated servant can also be translated slave. A slave of Jesus Christ. And we, we're not comfortable with that word, but that's probably the best way to translate it here. Paul is saying, I am totally and completely in the service of and submitted to, and in fact, as we learn uh, through other places in this book and in other uh, letters of Paul, uh, purchased by God through Jesus Christ. He is a slave. He's not coming here and telling them, I'm great, so you should listen to me. He comes to them saying, I am nothing, but I have a master who's something, right? He says he's called to be an apostle, and we sometimes think of that word apostle, and we think, oh, he's claiming some great authority here. But I'm not sure they would have understood that because the, the word apostle just means someone who's sent by another. We might translate that word an emissary. Paul's not flaunting his authority here. He's saying, I have a message from someone else, and that someone else is someone you should listen to. He says, I've been set apart, called, right? Called to be a, an emissary, 
and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. And who's his son? This is, a, this is your opportunity. to. <laughs> who's his son? Jesus. Now again, when Paul talks about Jesus being the son, we often are thinking of this kind of you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinitarian kind of thing. And that may have been in view. But I think what Paul is, we're going to see in a moment, what he's really talking about is something else. Uh, because he's about to say two things about Jesus being God's son. He says the first thing is he's the son of David. Now how does that show that Jesus is God's son? It shows that he has a, has a right to some kind of authority through David, but it doesn't mean that he's the second member of the Trinity, right? And we might look at the second one and say, well, this one does mean he's the second member of the Trinity because it says, you know, according to the flesh, he's a descendant of David. But according to the spirit, it says he was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The thing is, this is actually a reference to Psalm chapter 2, which ironically is another psalm about David. And it's the psalm where David is told by God, today you will be my son and I will be your father. This is about David becoming the king. You know, we, we don't have, um, certainly don't have kings and royalty in this country. And even in other countries where they do, it's usually a very minimal role compared to in the past, right? Uh, and also, we, like in England, for example, the queen just celebrated her 70th uh, anniversary of being queen, which is incredible, right? But if you want to make some kind of a treaty with England, you don't go to the queen. You go to the prime minister, or you go to parliament. You know, you don't... You don't go to the monarch. The monarch is a figurehead. But in the past, if you wanted to have some kind of a treaty or agreement with another nation, you would go to the head of the nation, the king or the queen. And typically, you would have two different types of arrangements. You either are coming together as equals, right? So you might have two nations that are similarly powerful and uh, have similar uh, 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 military ability, right? And so they would come together as equals. And often what they would do is one of them might, this is how they would kind of seal the treaty, is they might marry, marry one of the other's sisters. Or they might give their niece in marriage to his nephew or something like that. And they would become brothers or brother and sister. But if you had a more powerful king with a lesser king, then typically the more powerful one would be the father and the lesser one would be the son. And that's why God tells David, today I've become your father and you have become my son. Now, David didn't marry the daughter of God. You, you couldn't do that. So God adopted him. God adopted David. And when God adopted David, that was the symbol and the, the sign to the nation of Israel that David was king. So what God says, what Paul says here is that 
according to the flesh, Jesus is the son of David. So he has every right to be king. And according to the spirit, he was appointed the son of God. Now, Jesus was never not the son of God in the father, son, Holy Spirit sense, right? Jesus didn't become the son of God when he was born. He didn't become the son of God when he died. When did Jesus become the son of God? Never. He has always been the son of God. So he's not talking about Jesus' divinity so much right here. The only sense in which he became the son of God is that he was inaugurated as king. And that didn't happen until his resurrection. Through the spirit, or the, uh, in the Greek it says, according to the spirit, he was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus lived his perfect holy life. He honored the Lord in everything that he did. He submitted himself to death on the cross. In that death, that sacrifice, he took on the sin, shame, guilt of the world and then distributed his righteousness to those who believed in him. He was put to death and then he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, that was God saying something like this. Today you have become my son and I have become your father. This is your coronation day. This is the day, yeah, we know you're going to be king, but this is the day when you put on the throne. So if Jesus is going to celebrate a jubilee like the Queen of England, it's going to be on Easter Sunday, his resurrection day. Not, his, not on Christmas, right? Not even on Good Friday. It's Easter Sunday. This is where Jesus was crowned, King of kings and Lord of lords. And even Paul alludes to this in, in Philippians when he says that God raised him up and gave him a name that was higher than any other name. So what Paul is saying is, look, don't take my word for it. I'm just an emissary from the king. I'm just a slave of the king, not only of Israel, but the king of the universe, the king of all creation, the one who died and was raised from the dead. That's the one whose message I'm bringing. In fact, we're on the same level. Look what he says. He says, I was called, but you also are called, in verse 6. You also are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We're both slaves. So I'm not some high and mighty apostle. You and I, we're both slaves of Jesus Christ. And if I bring a message from my master, who is also your master, then you should listen. You see that? Man, he is just laying out not his authority, but Christ's authority. And I love that. He says, look, we're both the same in Jesus because he's the king and we're just slaves. So if you're going to put your trust in anyone's authority, put it in the authority of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing Paul does as he's writing this letter to someone he's never met, trying to tell them how to receive, understand, and live out the gospel is he takes the idea of his own authority off the table and he puts everything on Jesus. And then Paul goes on to do the very thing himself that he's going to call these Romans to do. So look at verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you 
because your faith is being reported all over the world. You can imagine this church in Rome, the most powerful city in the world. The gospel has gone to Rome. People are hearing about it, and Paul is ecstatic. He's rejoicing over it. He's excited about it. Verse 9, God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you and my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Now, Paul's dictating this letter. Okay? He's not, he doesn't write it out himself. In fact, he mentions in different letters, you know, I'm signing my name by my own hand, but he's had someone else recording this for him, which is common practice. And um, you can almost imagine Paul has just made the point that we're all equal. And then he says, I want to come to you so that I can give you some incredible spiritual gift. And then you, you almost imagine him saying, wait, 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 hold on, that doesn't sound right. Let me clarify what I mean. And he clarifies right here, he says, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. This is not Paul talking about him coming and laying hands on someone and they start prophesying. It's not Paul saying that he comes and he prays over people and they start speaking in tongues or they start, uh, you know, doing miracles. When he says, I want to impart a spiritual gift to you, he's not using this as some technical term. We think of these words as like the definitions are, are written in stone. No, he's saying, I want to give you a gift that's spiritual. And he defines it that we might mutually encourage one another. That's the definition of imparting a spiritual gift, is that there would be encouragement passed back and forth one to another. See how mutual it is? It says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Right? He says, I, I, I want to come there, and I want to share the gospel with people and see them come to the Lord. I want to tell them about the sacrifice of this incredible uh, uh, God-man, Jesus Christ, who is perfect and holy and righteous, the one who, who alone could be the perfect sacrifice for sin. And I want to tell them about that so that they can have not only faith in Jesus Christ, but be pulled into the family of God and restored to relationship with our Creator become part of this body of the church and live for Christ in a powerful way and then one day attain to the same resurrection, the same resurrection that raised Christ from the dead. That's what he wants. But look at verse 14 and 15. This is so interesting. He says, I am obligated. Another potentially better translation might be indebted. I am indebted both to Greeks and non-Greeks. Uh, he doesn't mean Greeks and Jews there. It, uh, the Greek says, uh, to Greeks and barbarians, but we don't like to say barbarians. Barbarians are just people who don't speak Greek, and the Greek listeners heard them talk, and they thought, oh, listen to those guys, bar, 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 bar. That's a barbarian, a non-Greek speaker. But he says, I'm obligated to all the Gentiles, both to the wise and the foolish. I'm indebted to them. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. How in the world is Paul indebted or obligated to the Gentiles? 
What have the Gentiles ever done for him? But it's the same thing. Did Paul receive the gospel by grace? Jesus called Paul when Paul didn't deserve it. He was murdering Christians. He was putting them in prison. He was persecuting them. He was hounding them, chasing around the world after them to capture them, stoning them. Paul did not deserve the grace of the gospel. And God gave it to him anyway. Can Paul ever repay that debt to God? No. So where does his indebtedness, where does God call his indebtedness to be uh, uh, re-aimed to those who are lost and have no hope apart from the gospel? Paul is indebted to the Gentiles not because of something they did for him, but because of something Jesus did for him. He's modeling this very same idea that he's going to make in this letter. God, through Jesus Christ, embraced you, so you, through Jesus Christ, must embrace others. And then this powerful, powerful um, statement that Paul makes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Um, Paul talks about shame. And we all know about shame. We've all experienced shame. Sometimes, sometimes we don't recognize shame when it's happening to us. Uh, but when Paul talks about shame, he's probably talking about something a little different. Now, most of us don't live in what we call an honor-shame society. So in the Western world, uh, we think a lot more about guilt than we do think about shame. But in the Eastern and Middle Eastern world, shame is a big part of the way uh, people operate in culture. And it's a complex and deep reality, but if I were to try to put it in very short definition, shame is something like this. I've put my hope and trust in something, and it has failed me. That's when I feel shame. Right? So uh, think about it this way. If you uh, are looking at the stock market and the stock market crashes totally, are you going to feel shame about that? No, probably not. If you have invested your life inheritance in the stock market and the stock market crashes, are you going to feel shame about that? Yes. You put your hope in it and it failed you. If you look out at your great and mighty army as a king, think of ancient times, horses, chariots, archers, you know, all those powerful uh, emblems of war. And you go out to war and you defeat your enemy. Are you going to be ashamed about that? No. 
If you go to war and your enemy, and your enemy defeats you, are you going to feel shame about that powerful army? Absolutely. And this is a common theme in Scripture. And I use that second example just to allude to the verse that says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. If you trust in chariots and you trust in horses, according to Scripture, you will be put to shame. But if you trust in the Lord, you will never be put to shame. Why is that? Because the power and might of armies fail, but the power and might of God never fails. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he's not just saying, it includes this, but he's not just saying, I'm not embarrassed to tell people about Jesus. And I think that's how we kind of read it. Oh, Paul's not embarrassed to talk about Jesus. Paul's not embarrassed to talk about the gospel. Paul's not embarrassed to, to write a letter to people he's never met and tell them about the grace of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the, the life of, of obedience that can follow. He's not embarrassed to do that. Just like I wasn't embarrassed to go to the mall or to go to um, the, uh, the kid's house at my church who visited my church or to go to the streets of Chicago. I wasn't embarrassed about that. But that's not really what he's getting at. What he's really getting at is this idea is that I have put my trust in the gospel and it has never let me down. It has never let me down. And he can't conceive of a way that it could ever let him down. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And now the reality is you might be embarrassed to go out and talk about the gospel, but in this sense, you will never be put to shame by the gospel. So this is a, this is a reality that goes beyond your feelings here. But it certainly does involve your feelings. Because if you don't know that the gospel will never let you down, then you might be embarrassed of the gospel. But if you know that it won't, how could you be? And what is this gospel, according to Paul? And we're going to get more into this as we go along. But the gospel is the, the simplest way to define what the power of the gospel is. It's the power to free people from God's wrath Paul talks about this, and to restore people to the glory of God, he talks about that. Now again, we do not like this idea of God's wrath, right? Who loves to talk about God's wrath? Raise your hand. Who likes to admit even that God has wrath? Especially in our culture today, uh, one of the biggest things that people claim keeps them from God is that, oh, this is a God who orders the execution of men, women, and children. Oh, this is the God who creates, uh, who creates hell for people that he doesn't like, as if that were a good explanation of what were going on. Oh, this is, you know, if God is loving, then God would never punish anyone, right? But here's the thing. There's two sides to this that I want to hit on real quick. The first is this. If you're talking about a king, which is what we're doing, right? Jesus is a king. He's a son of God according to David and according to the resurrection of the dead, according to the spirit. He's been inaugurated. He's been crowned. He has authority, power, and his power is limitless. His knowledge is limitless. His wisdom has no bounds, okay? 
And again, we don't, we're, we're in our culture, we just don't like this at all, but here's the deal. When you talk to the king, your opinion doesn't matter. No, Lord, I'm not opposed to you. I'm not against you. I'm not uh, at odds with you. It doesn't matter what you think. Whose opinion of whether you are against the king matters? The king's, right? You ever watch those historical dramas where someone comes before the king and they're pleading their case? And at some point, the king gets fed up, and he's just like, all right, kill that guy. And, then, and they go in, and they kill him right there. That may not be a pleasant thing to think about. But does the king go to jail after that happens? No. And sometimes, if we can overcome this kind of hesitation we have as a people about monarchies, we might even think, oh, that was probably the right thing to do. Right? May have been the right thing to do. Now, when it's Jesus, does, does God, the king, does, does God ever order the death of, of people who are opposed to him? Can you think of any examples? Man, I can think of tons of examples in the Bible where God orders the death of people. And can I tell him he's wrong? No. no, because he has all the authority, he has all the right, he has all the power, and it's an appropriate right authority and power. Now, there's this other side of this where I can also think of multiple reasons why it was the right thing to do. I don't know the mind of God for sure, but I can certainly imagine possibilities where that was the right thing to do. I can understand how not doing that could have been worse than doing it. You know, you think about, this came up in a conversation the other day, um, when, oh, we were just there, uh, looking at, at Joshua, when the people take Jericho, and I believe Achan, Achan takes uh, some things from the city, some loot, some booty that he wasn't supposed to keep, and he takes it and hides it. And God says to Joshua, Israel has sinned against God. Israel has, not Achan has, Israel has. Purge the sin of Israel, or I will not go with you. Why would God do that? That doesn't seem fair. But he knows if he doesn't respond to the sin of Achan, it's going to be repeated and multiplied, and the people of God eventually will see him as a weak and, and really dishonest God who doesn't follow his own word. And there will be no hope for those kind of people to take the promised land. And if there's no promised land, there's no protection for Israel. And if there's no protection for Israel, there's no seed. And if there's no seed, there's no Jesus. And if there's no Jesus, then we have no hope in the world. So God chose to bring, pour out his wrath on one family to protect billions of people who would one day put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, they, they may not have been able to see that at the time, but with hindsight and history, we can begin at least to imagine why God would do something like that. So is that God being mean or, or 
immoral or um, uh, what's the word? That he's just on a whim? No. God in his infinite perfect wisdom and his perfect love and his perfect justice decrees what he decrees. So in fact, we're going to be looking next week about the wrath of God and how it's poured out on mankind and we will not like it. Just like the Romans won't like it. Which is why Paul says, this isn't my message. This is the message of the king. This is the message of the king of Israel and the king of the universe. And it doesn't matter what you think about righteousness and unrighteousness. What matters is what he thinks about righteousness and unrighteousness. So, God, so Paul is saying, look, I'm about to share with you some things that are going to make us all uncomfortable, but I'm not ashamed, not because I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed because there is power here, and it's a power that has never let me down. Okay, that's the weight of what he's saying. And then he says, for, it is the, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The Greek says, a righteousness that is from faith to faith. It begins with faith, it ends with faith. And so then we have to ask ourselves, what is faith? What is he talking about? Now, we're going to come back to this. I'm going to give a super short uh, definition, explanation um, that I've used before with you guys over the years. But um, just know that we're going to come back to it because there's a whole lot to, to get at here. Okay, do you know how in the book of James it says that the demons believe in God and they shudder? So is faith believing in God? cannot just be believing in God. But must faith include believing in God? Yes. And what are you going to believe? What is it that you're to believe? Because I could come to you and say, look, have more faith. And you can go home and think, I'm going to have more faith. And it's, have more faith in what? Right? I, in God. Okay, in God. Well, who is this God? What is he intending to do? What are, what are his plans? What are his intentions? What are his promises? And so on some level, in order to have faith, you have to have some knowledge of who you're putting your faith in and what they plan to do. It's not even enough to say he's the God of the universe, the creator of all. If his plan is to destroy you, then why would you put your faith in him? Right? And there, there, are, uh, there are gods out there in history who were not gods that you would put your faith in. I mentioned it last week. I would not put my faith in Zeus because Zeus is a jerk. And he's not out for me. He's out for himself. Right? And he's out for, getting, he's out for asserting his power over, first and foremost, other gods and using us as pawns in the process. Why would I put my faith in that kind of god? So Zeus could be the most powerful being in the universe. And so in that sense, I should probably serve him out of fear so that he doesn't kill me. But I'm not going to put my trust in him. I'm not going to have faith in him. So you need knowledge of who God is and what he wants to do. We call that the person and plan of God. Well, you might know who God is and what he plans to do, but you may not believe it. 
right? There are actually a lot of people in the world today who know who Jesus is. They know what Jesus has done. They know what the gospel's about. They know what he offers. They just don't think it's true. And so to have faith, you have to believe that it's true, right? That's the next thing. But it doesn't stop there. We just said even the demons know who God is. The demons know what his plan is. And the demons believe that it's true. The next step is you have to actually commit your life to it. And I would say commit your life to it in love. It's not enough to say, I know that Jesus is real and I know what he's done. I have to then hand over my life, my future, my plans, my dreams, my hopes into the hands of Jesus before I really have faith. And when I do that, getting back to this shame thing, now I can put my hope in something that will not fail me. That's faith. Faith is this knowledge of the person and plan of God. It's agreeing or assenting that it's true. It's making a love commitment, resting my life in the hands of this person, in the hands of this promise, right? And then having this powerful hope for the future because God is God and God is good. So this is where Paul is going to be going for the rest of his letter. It's all under the authority of King Jesus, right? He's the son of God through David. He's the son of God by his resurrection. He's been coronated. He's been crowned as king. He has authority. It's going to be about uh, recognizing that what God has done for us compels us to do the same for others. It is about a gospel that's able to free us from this wrath of God because it's the king's perspective of my allegiance to him that matters, not my own. Right? You, you, you could talk to plenty of, of people who don't believe in God and they're going to say, well, I don't hate God. I'm not opposed to God. I'm not his enemy. And it doesn't matter. It matters what God thinks. And also has the power to bring those people to glory. Right? And we're going to talk about, through this letter, how God is inviting us into a kind of glory that we still don't even understand after we become Christians. Because it's too great. It's too great for him even to describe, but he describes this, in, he, he talks about this indescribable reality that awaits us. And then he's going to show us how everything about this always begins with, continues with, and finishes with faith. It's not about obedience. It's not about perfection. It's not about your righteousness at all. It is always and only about the righteousness of Christ given by grace to you and to me for this new kind of life and new kind of living. And so as we go on in the book of Romans, what I want you to do, if, if you would, uh, by the way, in the email that we send out midweek, I put in some questions for you to think about in regards to the passage that we just read. I'll be doing that every week. 
um, I'm going to invite you to, to begin to, as we go through, ponder how these ideas are not just things for us to think about, but they're actually invitations for us to live by. You know, as I was reading and preparing this week, you know, reading through Romans again and then preparing just for this section, it drove me this week to go back into prayer to first and foremost say, Lord, I submit my life to you again. I receive this gospel daily. I receive it again. So every day this week, I've been praying to receive the gospel, not because I need to get saved again, but because every day when I wake up, my inclination is to think that it's about what I need to do instead of remembering about what Jesus has already done. And then every day, I, I have to, to, to teach myself again that um, what God is calling me to is nothing other than to be consumed into, and this, is not, this can sound like a negative thing, but be consumed into the reality of Jesus Christ, meaning that I am to be his slave, and that that is the most blessed place to be, is to be a fully devoted servant of Jesus Christ. And it has reminded me that if I'm going to do any of the things that God's called me to, that I need to do it by his power and not mine, and so I've been kind of praying through and, and uh, I have this wonderful resource I can share about just abiding in Christ, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Uh, you know, anything that I do in my own strength will be not only suspect, but it will fail. But anything I do in Christ's strength will be real and will stand and will last. And so, you know, I'm inviting you each week Allow these truths not only to change the way you think, but then change the way you live. Change the way you interact with Jesus. Change the way that you think about and then act in the world. My takeaway today is simply this. Jesus is king. So the most important thing is to be in right relationship with him. There's nothing I can do that will be more important in life than being in the right relationship with the king of the universe. And then my job is simply to submit myself to his rulership by faith. And it's not a grudging submission. It's the kind of thing that, that you can't help but want to do what he asks. Right? Right? You know, I think of, think of uh, whether it's myself or anyone, you know, you're in, you're in a new budding relationship. I remember when Sonia and I first started dating, and I was so excited just to be with her. And anything that she asked me to do, I would pretty much say yes and just do it, and I would be delighted to do it. Now, I, to my chagrin, I have to admit that hasn't, that hasn't been the case always since. But with the Lord, I mean, it should be for all our relationships in a sense, but, but for the Lord, multiply that times a thousand. How delighted we can be to serve the God of the universe, to serve Jesus in a loving way. So that's our job is to submit to him and learn how he wants us to trust him and then how he wants us to live. Trust first, 
Action second. Right? That's where we're going. That's what this is all about. So church, let me pray for you. And um, I'm excited about the ride that's ahead. I'm excited about where we're going. So I hope that you'll continue with us. Let's pray. God, you have, you have um, given us this, this letter in your word, this, this book of Romans, um, because the message that's in it that was for those Roman Christians 2,000 years ago is still completely relevant for us today. Lord, and these, these words, just like all the words of your scripture, still have the power to change our lives and to remind us of what it is that you called us to in the first place when you called us to be sons and daughters and called us to be redeemed by Christ. And so, Lord, first my prayer is for anyone here who doesn't know you in that way. God, that there would be an opening in each heart to the goodness of the gospel, the beauty of what Christ has done. Lord, that we all would submit our hearts, lives, dreams, passions, desires, submit them all to Jesus Christ in love and in joy and gratitude. God, second, for all those who are in you, that we would embody the truth that gospel in ways that we may not have seen that we are called to do before. In ways that maybe we weren't alert that you were asking us to. And to see the world through this lens of in the most positive way, this indebtedness, this obligation. Not an obligation that binds us and holds us down, but an obligation that frees us an indebtedness, ironically, that frees us. As we sang about, I'm going free. I'm going free. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Jesus is my victory.